Before we read scripture, let me just give a brief plug for what you just saw. Uh, the men's series, uh, the 33 series, begins this coming Saturday. Uh, we meet at 8 o'clock in the HBC Study Center. We meet for only an hour and a half, 8 to 9.30. And um, I have been pleasantly surprised at how good the last couple of studies we've done have been. And this is on work. And if there's ever an area where our culture needs a biblical view, it's in the area of work. So I want to challenge uh, you men to come and be a part of this series. We're not going to meet six Saturdays in a row. The dates will be spread out a little bit more this time. But we begin this coming Saturday uh, at 8 o'clock in the HBC Study Center, and I strongly encourage you to come and take advantage of this really helpful material. Now, our scripture reading this morning comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Ecclesiastes chapter 10, and we'll read verses 12 through 20, verses 12 to the end of the chapter. If you have one of the black Bibles off the table in the back, you'll find it on page 558. As is often the case with Ecclesiastes, there's a statement or two in here that makes us scratch our heads, and we wonder, Pastor Mark will solve all the head-scratching for us. But don't let those couple of statements that make you scratch your heads miss the penetrating power of the rest of these words. They really, they really speak to us. And so give careful attention to the Word of God as we read this morning, Ecclesiastes 10, beginning at verse 12. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words. Though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him, the toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth, the roof sinks in and through indolence, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. May God bless the reading and now the preaching of his word. Well, thank you, Tim, for that. And this is a, a bit of a complex passage in, uh, in Ecclesiastes, but the whole book has been complex. And it's been, a, it's been one of those gifts that has a lot of layers to it. And sometimes you've gotten those Christmas presents that are really easy to open. I mean, they're practically coming in a gift bag and you just rip the tissue out and there it is. Or sometimes we don't even put the tissue in, you know, if you're like me. It's just a waste of a dollar fifty. Um, but if, if, 
but there's some gifts that are that are multi-layered and it's like you're ripping and tearing and tearing and tearing and finally you get down inside of it and hopefully it's not a brick. And I don't think in the Bible it's ever a brick. It's always worth our effort and worth our toil. And uh, part of the, you know, one of the big themes in Ecclesiastes is that there, it's toil under the sun. It's, it's difficult. And, and I think in some ways the book itself gives you that feeling as you work through it and read it and try to study it and understand it. There is a sense of, of toil to it. Now, we are closing in on the end of this book, and we just have a few sermons left. Um, we're going to get into chapter 11 and 12 in the coming weeks, and I think we're going to deal with, it, with that in, in three sermons. So by the end of March, we'll be finished with the book of Ecclesiastes. So we're nearing the end of the journey. And let me just bring us back, 30,000 feet view, pull us up a little bit, and just get our bearings for where we are in this book. The first couple chapters, Solomon starts talking about the pursuit of satisfaction, and he gives all these different avenues of ways in which man and he himself pursued joy, pleasure, satisfaction in life, and he found that they were all empty. When he gets to chapter 3, he shifts the focus from us to God, and he talks for two chapters from chapter three, well, really three chapters, three, four, and five really have this main dominant theme of God's complete sovereign control over the entire world that he has created. And then in chapters six through eight, he sort of resolves that tension and he brings the solution to bear. He says, okay, we have this pursuit of satisfaction and this God in heaven. Maybe those two things aren't meant to be separated from each other. Maybe, in fact, our pursuit of satisfaction is to be in the God of heaven. And he really wrestles with that and what that, um, what that means for our world now and what that means for our lives personally. And then in chapter 9, he starts to unpack various situations where wisdom is needed in this cursed, broken, vain world that we live in. So that's the book. The pursuit of satisfaction and how it's empty apart from God, the God who is and offers himself to us, who has created us and made us and made this world crooked the way it is because of the fall and the curse. And then the resolving of that in, in, in bringing God, so to speak, down to earth and then the situations that that impacts and how we live. And so we're right in the middle of that sort of practical issues section. And this will carry us right on to the end. He's making his applications now. He's talking about what this means for us on the street level. When we leave this room and go back out into our lives that God has called us to lead, how do we live a wise life? How do we live a life that's not marked by stupidity, foolishness, that's not behaving in ways that are going to bring us further discouragement, that are going to be not in line with the way God has made the world to be. So that's where we are. We're going to look at wisdom on the street level. We're going to look at what Solomon has to say about our mouths and how they can keep us out of trouble or get us in a lot of trouble. And he's going to talk about maturity. And he's going to talk about motivation. And then we're going to see the Messiah. So let's start with our mouths because that's where Solomon begins in verse 12, he says, the words of a wise man's mouth 
win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. Now let's just be really clear about what the Bible says up front about our mouths, that they are very, very near impossible to get a hold of. James 3, 2 says that, that if we are able to keep our mouths in check, we are near perfection. Our mouths will get us in a lot of trouble or keep us out of a lot of trouble. And he starts by commending the words of the wise. And he says, wise men, not wise guys. We all know those kind of people in the mouths that they have. It's about wise men here, mature, wise, godly, whose mouths are being shaped and informed by the Bible and the God it reveals. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor. Now, this could mean a couple of things. It could mean that the wise man's words win him a good reputation. In other words, he speaks wisely, and as a result, he has a good reputation with others. It could mean that. He's looked upon favorably. Or it could mean that actually he is a blessing to others. The word favor literally means gracious. The words of a wise man are gracious. They give grace to people. They are a source of blessing to others. When they speak, blessing comes into people's lives as a result of it. And I think based on the context, I tend to favor that interpretation. So the focus then is not so much on what our words get from others, that is a good reputation, but on what our words give to other people. Namely, blessing the gracious love of God. And this is confirmed for us in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 29. A verse I think most of you know. But if you don't, let me quote it. Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up, that it may give grace to those who hear. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their need, that it may may give grace to those who hear. So the New Testament picks up on this idea of our words, giving grace to others, being a source of blessing, building others up. So what does that speech look like practically? What would the wise man's speech look like? Well, I think first of all, a wise man's speech is going to be full of thanksgiving. It's going to be marked by thankfulness. It's going to be marked by worship of God. It's going to be marked by praise. Now, it's not the person who's always walking around, praise God, praise God, praise God. But it is the person who, when they speak, there is a tone of thankfulness about what they say. They seem to have a speech that's marked by a lot of gratitude, by a lot of thankfulness, not by a lot of grumpy complaining. Okay, there's also... um, A wise person's words would be marked by words of encouragement more than words of criticism. Now, there are certainly times and places for giving legitimate and helpful and gentle criticism. But I think the wise person, their words will be marked more by encouragement than criticism. Usually the way to bring out the best in people, if you haven't figured this out, is not to find fault with them all the time. How many of you feel like love working for that boss? Or love being in that teacher's classroom. Or love being raised raised by those parents. Or love being in that church. Finding fault all the time. Pointing out your deficiencies. Pointing out your areas of weakness. Rather than highlighting areas of encouragement and building you up. That's wise speech. Also, a wise person's mouth would speak the truth in love by saying what needs to be said. In a loving way. Wise people aren't scared to call out the elephant in the room. 
to speak what needs to be said, to say what needs to be said, to correct when need, when things need to be corrected, but they do it in a loving way and they avoid confrontation when it's not their God given place to do it. They don't butt into conversations they're not supposed to be involved in. They don't give their opinion and give their feedback on things that they shouldn't be giving their feedback on. So a wise person's mouth will be marked by speaking the truth. Also, a wise person's mouth will speak with gentleness, not in unrighteous anger and uncontrolled speech, but measured and gentle. A wise person knows how to use these words big time. I'm sorry, please forgive me. That's a wise person. When you hear, I'm sorry, please forgive me a lot from a person, you usually meet a wise person. A wise person also speaks words of love and affection. I love you. You mean this to me. You mean this much to me. I'm thankful for you and other affirming words. And this is exactly the opposite way of the way most of us by nature interact. Most of the time, most of our words are used to secure something from others for us rather than give something to others through us. We are seeking to use our words to get a laugh, trying to get something from somebody else or get attention or get some, somebody to do something for us or build ourselves up or tear somebody else down. And those are not wise words. Those are the words of a fool. And that's where Solomon takes us at the end of chapter, or sorry, at the end of verse 12 and on through uh, verse 14. So let's look at these a little bit more, talk a little bit more about our mouths. I, Solomon only gives half a verse to wise, wise words, and he gives two and a half verses to foolish words. I guess he means that we need to learn more about foolish words because we don't have a lot of wise words. And so we need to really clarify what foolish words look like. So he begins in the second half of verse 12 and says, but the lips of a fool consume him. Now, isn't it ironic that the things we use to consume food, namely our lips and our mouths can actually be a source of consuming ourselves. That's what Solomon points out here. He says the lips of a fool consume him. They're self-destructive. That is, they come back to bite you. Your words will eat you up. They'll eat you alive. So, he says, when a fool opens his mouth, the words that come out turn right around and swallow him up. And the Proverbs, Solomon wrote these in the book of Proverbs, unpacks how the words of a fool can bring us harm. Listen to a few Proverbs. Proverbs ten fourteen: the mouth of a fool brings ruin near. Proverbs 4, 14, 3, by the mouth of a fool comes a rod for his back. Proverbs 18.6, a fool's lips walk into a fight and his mouth invites a beating. (laughs) That's in the Bible. People talk and ask for it to get whipped. Proverbs 8.7, a fool's mouth is his ruin and his lips are a snare to his soul. So you see that language of your mouth is getting you in trouble. And one such example of it is given at the very end of, the, of, our, of our chapter here in Ecclesiastes 10.20. You want to look, if you want to look there, this is an example of words getting someone in trouble. He says, even in your thoughts, don't curse the king, nor in your bedroom, curse the rich 
for a bird of the air will carry your voice and some winged creature tell the matter. Say, I just shared it privately or I just communicated this bad thing that I shouldn't have said out loud to somebody. But lo and behold, they found out about it. He says, don't even let your thoughts entertain things like that, much less speak them. One of the riskiest things that we do is criticize people in authority. He says, say something stupid before we know the whole world knows about it. And he says, be careful about cursing the king. About people who can actually have some response to what you are saying. So once our words leave our mouths or leave our Facebook page or get posted on there or on various other forms of social media or through an email or through a text message, once our words are out, hear this, you lose control over where they go. Once your words have left your mouth or left your thumb, you've lost control over where they go. And that's, can be a, that can be a, a bad, bad situation. And I would say that words probably destroy more relationships than about anything else. I would certainly say that words destroy more marriages than infidelity does. In fact, it's probably the words that lead to the other. So words can also destroy parent-child relationships. Words can destroy friendships. And he's saying what James says in James chapter 3, to know the power of the tongue, that it has a destructive property to it. It can set ablaze things. Paul Tripp says this, listen to the talk that goes on in your home. This is penetrating and convicting and characteristic of me far too often. Listen to this. I'm, not, I'm, I'm speaking this out of a, 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 a clear Holy Spirit finger point in my own heart. Listen to the talk that goes on in your home. How much of it is impatient and unkind? How often are words spoken out of selfishness? How easily do outbursts of anger occur? How often do we bring up past wrongs? How often do we fail to communicate hope? How often do our words carry threats that, if we, ha- that we have had it and are about to quit? That's self-destructive talk. Those are the, that's the, that's the mouth of a fool. Also in verse 13, he talks more about the words of a fool. Notice this, the beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness and the end of his talk is evil madness. (laughs) There's a downward spiral, isn't it? (laughs) So he says, here's what happens. He starts to speak. The fool starts to speak and it's bad to begin with. And the more he talks, the worse it gets. It doesn't get better. It starts bad. What, be, what starts as merely foolish turns into depravity. It turns into evil. It turns into madness. What starts as foolishness ends in evil madness, Solomon says. So how quickly, how quickly our speech can move from silence to gossip to slander to malice to hatred to abuse. And that's what he's talking about, this downward spiral of foolish talk and how it goes, it gets wor- it goes from worse to worse. He also says in verse 14, 
that the fool, as a result of all that, don't, doesn't stop talking. Just keeps talking. The fool multiplies words. Verse 14. Though no man knows what is to be and who can tell him what will be after him. So what's going on here? The fool's talking about a lot of stuff he doesn't know anything about. And he's especially talking about the future. Fools like to make arrogant and boastful claims about what they're going to do. You meet those people? All about what's going to happen, what, we're, what I'm going to do, what things are going to happen, not about what's happening. And they're unable to back up what they're saying with any sort of knowledge or action. It's just a lot of talk. Fools are usually quite opinionated. They tend to be big talkers. They go on and on and on even when they don't know what they're talking about. And Proverbs talks about this. Proverbs 18.2 explains why the fool does this. The fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. I've got an opinion and I'm going to say it. Well, you're a fool. Maybe. There's times to share opinions, of course. But beware of always giving unsolicited opinions. Proverbs 29, 29. If a wise man has an argument with a fool, the fool only rages and laughs and there is no quiet. Been with that person trying to give a logical reason. And they're just, ah, no, no, not even listening to you. Not like you spoke a logical thing. And the way they respond is, oh, who cares about that? Da, 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 you're too thought. No. They're just raging and laughing and there's no quiet. When you're trying to give a logical, just trying to say, here's what it is. And they're avoiding the issue. It's not about the issue. Proverbs 23, 9. Do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the good sense of your words. So Bible says, don't even talk to him. Be quiet. Proverbs 29, 11. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. So a fool feels something, they say something. No sense of restraint. No sense of probably not the best time to say this. No sense of self-control. Proverbs twelve fifteen: The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. So the disposition of a wise person is humble. Please teach me. Please help me. I'm here to learn. I want to. I want to. I want. I, I don't. I don't have it all together. But a fool is just right in his own eyes. His perspective is the right one. There's a, there's a stiff neck pride to the fool. Proverbs 4, 14, 7, leave the presence of a fool for there you do not meet the words of knowledge. Proverbs 17, 10, a rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. Saying you can keep saying things to the fool. You can keep saying it, 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 keep saying it. It doesn't do any good. You talk to the wise man one time, things change. Proverbs 24, 7. Wisdom is too high for a fool in the gate. He does not open his mouth. Here's where a, a place you typically find fools silent in church. That's, that's, that's synonymous with the gate here. The gate is the place where the wise would gather for the purpose of hearing instruction and learning and fools come in there and they're like, Oh, they don't want to hear what I have to say. I don't know what's going on. So he says, wisdom is too high for the fool. They're not interested in wisdom anyway. They're interested, as it's said, in airing their own opinion and 
stating their grievances and talking about what is bothering them and giving full vent to their spirit and saying what their perspective is and they're not interested in taking a a humble posture. And here's the summary from a wise man, not a Christian, but a wise man, Plato. Wise men, he says this, wise men speak because they have something to say. Fools speak because they have to say something. And there's the difference. Wise men speak because they have something to say. It's on the content of what they're saying. Fools speak because they just have to say something. There's the difference. And that's what Solomon's calling us to here. He's calling us to be wise in our speech, to speak when we have something to say, not when we just want to say something. And that's our mouth. Anybody convicted by that? Me too. (laughs) Me too. When we start talking, when the Bible starts talking about our tongues and our mouth, boy, it's, it's, it's brutal. It is brutal. And it's meant to be brutal. Honest. Honesty is what we need. And the Bible gives it to us. And when we feel that and we start feeling specific conviction for that, and when our mouths get us in trouble and the things that we say we wish we could take back, which is the case for all of us in here, then we're ready to hear about Jesus. But not until then. Not until we start really dealing with our mouths. And that's where Solomon takes us first. Secondly, he wants to talk to us about our maturity. So he talks to us about our mouths, and now he wants to talk about maturity in verses 16 and 17. And these verses tell the story of what happens when the incompetent is in charge. And the clear theme is maturity. It's using a government analogy of a king, and, and his, and, but the clear theme here is on maturity. You'll see it as we read, I think. Verse 16 and 17. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, there's mature, immature, and your princes feast in the morning, which is not the time they should be feasting. They should be getting ready to rule the kingdom. Verse 17, happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. So he compares two kings, right? He compares a child king that is very immature and doesn't have any business running the kingdom. And then he compares that to a wise king, a noble king who knows and exercises restraint and knows what he ought to be doing at different times in his kingdom and isn't playing when he should be working or working when he should be playing either one. So we start in verse 16 with Solomon's description of the foolish king. What is the purpose of this fool's kingship? Party. Party time. That's the purpose of the kingship. Let's get some liquor up in this place. And so he does. He gets, he, he's a child. He's immature. He's put at a point of leadership. He's appointed the king and his princes. He gets his buddies together and they feast in the morning. So he gets up every morning with the goal of getting wasted. And Solomon says, woe to you when you have those kind of leaders. Woe to the land when it has those kind of leaders. Now, lest we be um, 
lest we be mistaken here, Solomon clearly believes there is a time for feasting. There's never a time for getting wasted. But there is an appropriate time for feasting and celebration and joy. We've seen that throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. And he even alludes to it in verse 17. He doesn't say the noble king is just the king who knows to the grindstone, work all day long, no fun, no joy. Salute your dictator. He's running your government. He's doing what he's supposed to be doing. And he's a terrible guy to be around. It's not that. He says that the noble king, verse 17, is the king that feasts at the proper time. And it has a purpose. It's for strength and not for drunkenness. So there's a time and place for feasting. But what Solomon is getting at is there's also a danger of wasting our lives by spending our days in one passing pleasure to the next. Now, let's step outside the realm of the kingdom and apply this personally. Okay? How can you tell the mature from the immature? The mature person exercises restraint and knows when to do things at the proper time. They're not all working 24 hours a day, killing themselves with no, no joy. That's not mature. That's being a slave to the idol of work. But neither are they giving in to feasting all the time when they should be working. And the mature person does their feasting and does their joy for the purposes of things that serve their strength for serving others. That's what mature Christianity is about as well. That when we feast, that when we celebrate, it is not an impediment to our service, but fuel for our service. It helps us serve others. It helps us love others better. It doesn't keep us from loving others. It serves as strength to us. And that's maturity. The mature person knows that their life doesn't exist for them. It doesn't exist for the the, the end goal of their pleasure. Right now, in this moment, I will have it. They are willing to delay pleasure, constrain themselves, be wise, exercise self-control for the purposes of feasting at the proper time for strength. The mature person takes that, takes what, it has a balanced life of feasting and fasting, of work and play. There's a, there's a wonderful balance to the mature person's life. And it all serves strength for service. It all fuels strength to serve. It's not there so you can get blasted and be incapable of caring about anybody but yourself. And so our maturity has harmful effects on those whom God has placed under us, does it not? Parents, would you say this? Would you say that the presence of maturity or immaturity in your life has a positive or negative impact on your children? Yes, and that's what Solomon, happy are you, O land, when you have mature leadership. Well, we could say the same thing about the home or the church or the United States of America or any realm of authority. Happy are you when you have mature people who exist not to serve themselves, but have your best interest in heart so that they may use what they do to fuel service and love. And that's a word for parents. That's a word for pastors. That's a word for business managers and employers. That's a word for older siblings and the way we care for our younger siblings so we must seek to be in service and use what 
use the, the life that God has given us, both joy, both work and play for the purpose of strength so that we might give our lives away in service and love to those whom God has placed in our lives to love and serve and care for. So that's maturity. That's the definition of maturity, I think, from these two verses. Let's go to the third point, motivation. So we've seen our mouth, our maturity. Now we're going to look at our motivation. And Psalm, Solomon hits on this in verse 15, 18, and 19. So let's back up uh, to verse 15 and see what he says here. He says, The toil, the work of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Now this is Solomon given a little bit of an insult. Look, if you're in the ancient world and you don't know the way to the city, <laughs> you're dumb. You are really dumb. You, there's no need to pull up the maps app on your iPhone at all for this. It's like, it's like me saying, okay, Ritzy's GD Ritzy's Thruston Dermont. I mean, we know how to get there. Right? It's right out there to the right. If you didn't, please don't feel bad about this illustration, okay? Okay? It's right out the doors. Go to your right. Okay, but it's like that. It's like there's this, there's this obvious thing that's there and that we're close to it. And he's saying the fool doesn't even know how to direct a person to get there to the city. And it wears them out to even think about it. I mean, it's sort of a jab. Ironically, the lazy fool gets worn out by his own work. The toil of the fool wearies him. Not so much because he's working hard, but because he's probably fooling around when he should be working. You ever notice that about us? I think this is a human characteristic. When we mess around when we should be working, you know how exhausted we are? And when how we give ourselves to work and invest ourselves in it, how refreshing it is. And how we leave the day like, wow, I worked a really hard day and I feel great. But when the day is piddled through and we kind of are distracted and do this when we should be doing that and playing when we should be, we just, man, I need a nap. And that's sort of what Solomon's alluding to here in verse 15. The toil of the fool wearies him. Fooling around when we should be working is far more exhausting than actually working. So what's the result of this motivation or lack thereof, we could say, verses 18 and 19, a very memorable image, which is, if you know the Proverbs, this is a, this is a popular image. He says, verse 18, through sloth, that is laziness, the roof sinks in and through indolence, the house leaks. See, the foolish person is not motivated to, to, to maintain anything. He thinks that, well, I don't have to invest in it. It's probably going to remain the same. Uh, I don't have to put any energy in it. You know, I don't have to change the oil in my car. I don't have to fix the leak in my roof. I don't have to tend to my marriage and love my wife and have conversations with her. And I don't have to invest in my children and spend time talking to them and relating to them and playing with them. I don't have to go to work and put in a hard day's work and pour out my energy for my employer in service to whatever, um, whatever good of humanity I, my work is contributing to. I don't have to invest myself in the church. I don't have to pour out my energy and, 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 and sow time in. It's just all going to be okay. That's the foolish way of thinking. 
says the wise people know that everything worth anything needs to be maintained because we live in a cursed, broken, vain world as Solomon has made really clear. So cars need to be maintained. House needs to be maintained. Church needs to be maintained. Marriage needs to be maintained. Parenting needs to be maintained. Work needs to be maintained. In contrast to the lazy fool, the hardworking person recognized that everything worth preserving in life has needs maintenance. It needs maintenance. And that's what Solomon is push, pushing us towards as motivation. He's saying, look, don't be a fool. When your roof is sinking in, that's not a sign that you're working hard. <laughs> that's a sign of your sloth. So fix it. And then he reminds everyone in verse 19, the logical thing, bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. Now don't, don't us super spiritualize Solomon here. Okay. He knows that money isn't the answer to everything. Read the previous 10 chapters, right? And listen to the sermon next week where he's going to talk about it again. So he doesn't mean everything in the ultimate sense. He means it this way, very basically. Okay, Solomon's being practical. He says, look, if you want to have what you need in life, you got to have some money. Okay? And so go to work and you'll have what you need and you'll also have some money to have some fun with. That's what he's saying. He's just being practical. He's saying, look, bread is made for laughter. Wine gladdens life. Money answers everything. Money supplies a thousand advantages. To having not no money. It supplies necessities. It supplies conveniences. It supplies embellishments. And it also provides you with an opportunity to give a lot of it away. So make some. <laughs> that's, that's Solomon's wise godly counsel for us. Make some money. Your life will go better if you make some money. Who would disagree with that? I think that's a wise statement, Solomon. He's not saying be rich. He's not saying pursue as much money as you can because money does not answer all of life's problems. Money will not fix your mouth. It won't fix your maturity. It won't fix your motivation. It won't fix any of the problems in the vain world, but it will make this vain world a little bit easier to get through. So that is Solomon's ruthless, brutal words of wisdom for us this morning in Ecclesiastes 10, 12 through 20. But I don't want to end there. Don't want to end there. We need to come back to a fourth M. We've looked at money. We've looked at maturity. We've looked at motivation. Now let's take our eyes off ourselves and let's look at our Messiah, our Jesus, because he's here too. He's here too. And uh, I love seeing him here. Now, let me just say this up front. Look at verse 16 and 17 again. Okay, it says, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child. Verse 17, happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility. The Bible has this paradigm to it, that this world is ruled by two kings. Okay? In the beginning, the first man, Adam, was a king. He was a vice regent. He was God's image bearer. He was to represent God in the earth and extend God's kingdom over all the earth by behaving righteously. But we know that he didn't do that. He was a child. 
He was a foolish king. He feasted in the morning. When he should have been concerned with obeying the the words of his father, God, he instead listened to the voice of the serpent. And this one feast brought woe upon the earth. Curse upon the earth. The world is the way it is because of Adam's sin. And this one feast on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil made him and the entire human race captive to foolishness. This is why, by nature, we do this stuff. Because we're born in Adam. We're born with mouths saying stuff they shouldn't be saying. We're born immature, behaving in ways that are immature. We're born with bad motivation or no motivation at all. Or the principal motivation to be unmotivated. And as a result, in the language of chapter 9, verse 18, one sinner destroyed much good. One sinner destroyed much good. And that's what Adam did. He was the fly in the ointment that brought a stench and curse onto mankind because of his disobedience. The result, look at chapter 10, verse 8. Look back up from our text to what Pastor Keith was alluding to last week. Verse 8, he who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him. Hear any any Edenic language there? Hear echoes of Eden in that passage? Adam dug a pit, and he fell into it, and a serpent bit him. And us. Proverbs 26, 27. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and listen to this, a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. So you got a serpent and a stone. The Bible's about Jesus. <laughs> got a serpent and a stone. So a stone came back representing death. Jesus was buried behind a stone. So whoever digs a pit will fall into it. The serpent will bite him. A stone will come back on him. What's the remedy? What's the remedy? We need a new king. We need a new king because our old king got us in a ton of trouble. He was a child. He feasted in the morning. We need a new king. Happy are you, O land. When your king is the son of nobility, and O is our Prince Jesus um, that. He is the son of nobility. He's the only begotten son of the father, the father's unique son. And he's the king who can get the stone off of us. Because he busted it off its rails when he came forth from the grave. God has provided us, church, with a king who is the son of nobility. Who, when he was tempted by the devil, did not feast in the morning. He didn't take when it was offered to him. No, he said, I have food to eat that you don't know of. No, no, no of. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. When the disciples were saying, eat, eat the bread, eat the bread. It's hungry. You're hungry. He said, no, that's not why I've come. It's not about my belly. It's about that woman at the well. And he did all that he did for strength and not for drunkenness. And aren't we glad? He was a prince walking as a slave. 
Chapter 10, verse 7, I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. And that was our Jesus. Princes walking around. He was a prince and the world didn't even recognize it. And here's where it really gets specific. Because of Adam's sin, we're not only in this predicament of living in this cursed world, but we're also under the just anger of God. Look at chapter 10, verse 4. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. How are we going to escape the anger of God, the wrath of God against us due to our sin? Well, it's because the son of nobility didn't leave our place. His calmness laid God's anger to rest. Now, if you notice, some of your Bibles will have a footnote for the word calmness. It's literally the word healing. And the Bible all over the place talks about Jesus's work on the cross as being a source of healing for the nations, healing of our sin, healing of the curse. And here we have an image. It's an illusion. It's not a direct parallel. It's just an image that the work of Christ on the cross because he died the death we deserve to die and he lived the life that we couldn't live that as a result of his sacrifice, God has taken away his sword and put it down because Jesus has satisfied the father. The stone that came back on us because of Adam's sin could not contain Jesus. Listen to Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are, church, healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There it is. Jesus pierced for our transgressions. Jesus crushed for our iniquities. Jesus put through chastisement that brings us peace and whose wounds heal us. Even though we like foolish, stupid sheep have gone astray. We've behaved in immature ways. We've spoken things we ought not to have spoken. We've done things we ought not to have done. And God says to us this morning, that does not disqualify you one bit from being a part of the kingdom of God. Not one bit. We behaved that way because we were foolish. We were dumb. We were under a stupid king. And yet we can have a transfer into a new kingdom. We can be a part of a new kingdom and a new race and a new people because there's a new king in the world. He's shown up and he's the son of nobility. And his name is Jesus. And we can, according to Ecclesiastes 10.2, switch sides. Look at 10.2. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right and a fool's heart to the left. We can go right to the right. We can go right toward the, the one who is at God's right hand. The one who sits at his right hand. Namely, Jesus Christ. And so, I just call you, if you're not a part of the kingdom of Christ... If you have recognized in yourself in this text, and we all do to various degrees, we all have, we all should recognize, listen, I don't want to be a fool. I don't want to be stubborn. I don't want to stick my, I don't want to express my opinions about what he just said. I want to listen. 
Because it's not what he's saying. He's just preaching from the Bible. And I'm, what I'm hearing is I'm a part of a kingdom that I shouldn't be a part of. That I'm here because of what Adam did. And I can now become a part of another kingdom. That I can do what Colossians 1 calls us to do. Which is to be transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God's son. And in that son, happy are you. Happy are you. No more woe. Yes, difficulty comes. Suffering comes. But happiness does not leave. Joy, rock-solid security, permanence, a strong foundation for our faith, a strong hope for our lives. That doesn't go anywhere. Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so I just call you to him. And I, and I want to remind you, because the vast majority of you here are a part of that kingdom. I just want to encourage you that the kingdom in which we live is a kingdom of grace and power and hope and joy. And that though much of our lives is still marked in many ways by the mouth and the maturity and the motivation of our past, of our former life in Adam, that by grace and because of Jesus' work on the cross and because it is finished, we can make headway against that. And we can fight against that sin, not because we feel like we're earning God's love because of it, but because we've received God's love and his unconditional forgiveness for all of our sin. And we know we're not doing it to try to pay God back and because we're in his debt now and we got to do our best. No, the debt is done. It's finished. There is no debt. But we respond, thankfully, by grace and great hope, and we make war on that foolish way of life that still characterizes all of us far too much. And that's the hope. That's the promise. And the, 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 the joy is that one day that when we get there and we see him as he is face to face, clean hands, pure heart. Everything that's going to come out of our mouths is going to be, I, I think we're going to be shocked <laughs> with what we say and the, the desire with which we say it. And our motivation will be pure and our, and we will be finally, truly mature because we'll be made mature in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to gaze at ourselves, to be under the instruction of your word, to have our sin identified and pointed out, and then to be pointed to the savior. Thank you for diagnosing us this morning. And thank you for delivering us this morning. That's the whole purpose of your word is to diagnose and deliver slaves. And you have diagnosed us again this morning. You have helped us to see our, our need for Jesus and you have shown us Jesus. And we thank you for giving him to us. And we thank you that by your grace, we are a part of his kingdom. And it's an immovable, unshakable kingdom that will grow brighter and brighter until the full day when his kingdom dominates the entire earth. And we pray even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen.